Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. What? My name is Delton. I will be your host today. Uh, Jeez, episode number 133. With me is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Whose left ear is now ringing because Delton started the uh, intro, and it was super loud, and I can't hear on my left ear right now. This is going, boop. Yes. Uh, I whenever I input the intro music into the podcast software, I always lower it by eight decibels, and I forgot to type in minus eight uh, on that audio line, and so it starts playing, and it's just like super loud for both of us. I even have your headphones turned down lower than mine because I keep mine turned up. So before we even finish our coffee, I am awake. Good morning, everybody. Good Saturday morning to you all. Yes, it is a Saturday morning. I didn't think to grab the little sticker detailed information for our coffee today, but I can find it online. We're having coffee. We are. Today we are having the December special release of Mini Worlds Tavern. They call it a funky flavor, and I do have to agree with that. I don't know what kind of coffee it is. The kind of coffee it is, I would say, is delicious, though. I'm pulling it up now to see exactly which one. This is one of their treasured realms, so if you don't know, Mini Worlds Tavern is coffee that we like. We talk about them a lot. I have a subscription monthly, so on the first of every month, we get a bag of their Treasured Realm, which is their like single origin special. It's not a normal blend. It's not their standard coffee. It's something from a different region, a different area, a different roaster, stuff like that. And this time, it came with a bag of beautiful blue D&D dice, because every time you order the Treasured Realm series, you get a beautiful set of D&D dice, as well as a special card with a special tool for your special D&D game. Yes, it's specifically made for Dungeons & Dragons 5e compatible. It's always a magical item. This time it was Romulus's Wolf Helm, a random set of dice. And this coffee is from the Aris Arena. Its coffee is called Aris Arena. Uh, Sorry, it's from the, uh, it's from Sumatra, Indonesia, an area called Aceh. So I'm going to pronounce it A-C-E-H. Notes of apple and brown sugar balanced by the depth of umami in the cup. And... It's a very peculiar coffee. It's like having a walnut salad in a cup. Like you have the sweet, you have the bitter, you have the savory, you have the almost sharp. It's a very like odd combination, and I'm not sure I've had anything similar before, but it is actually very good. Um, I really like it out of the French press, which is how we drink 99.9% of our coffee. I need to show the viewers... My coffee mug, we got the spooky Hello Kitty coffee mug this morning. And I'm a cat mom. He's a cat mom. Yes, we're showing viewers because just to remind you, the Patreon patrons at any tier level get access to the video podcast, which is basically just us sitting here pointing at the camera and saying, you, and that's that's essentially it. So we won't be referencing the camera uh, as much as last episode. Last episode was our first time doing this, so we're going to try to cut that down, I think, just to make sure that it's not a, an awkward thing in the podcast audio only, which is the main focus of the podcast, of course, because it's a podcast. But we're just baseline awkward, Delt. We are baseline awkward. But yes, uh, that is for our Patreon patrons. You can become one of those or at least check out the page at patreon.com slash malthouse games, which leads me to thinking our Patreon patrons that back at a level in which they get a shout out on the podcast That is going to be Alan, Jennifer, and Cliff. Thank you so much for backing at the level that you get a shout out. We have plenty of other backers, which you will get to see their names pop up on the video version of the podcasts at, well, usually when I do this spot now, I'm going to be putting, I did it the first, the first, last episode, uh, I'll be putting a little thing that just says, hey, thank you guys, basically, with your name. So, super cool. 
feel free to check that out. But yes, the past couple weeks since the last episode, uh, we're now into December, which feels weird. I had a birthday. You had a birthday, number 31. 31, having fun, nearly done. Exactly. Uh, We got to, we've done a, I feel like we've done a lot, but not a lot. Did we talk about Thanksgiving? We did. We did talk about Thanksgiving where we were stuck here at home. Finally tested negative on Monday, the day before my birthday. And so on my birthday, our friend Kyle came down and we went to have Tamashi Ramen and watched Glass Onion, which was phenomenal. Not as great as the first one because the first one had a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this one, unfortunately, only had a 94. So, you know, sequels just drop off. Yes. decline. If you enjoyed Knives Out, uh, Glass Onion, I think, and I talked to Mike at the comic shop about this. They did the appropriate thing where they said, we don't want to try to just make uh, Knives Out basically, you know, 2.0 and try to do the same thing. It's not the same formula. Yeah, it's not the same formula. It's not the same feel. It's not the same... Uh, kind of thing. It's it's a lot more grandiose and kind of ridiculous, and it all worked perfectly for a very fun movie that felt like a Knives Out movie, but it wasn't trying to be the first one, so it wasn't trying to compete with itself, and I think they did a great job. And it had a different message, too. Yes. And I feel like this one was a little quirkier, and I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. I loved it. Great This one was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And since then, too, we had my winter workshop weekend at work, so pulled a few 10-hour days doing some workshops and learned a whole bunch about uh, medical conditions and psychology and all sorts of fun stuff. But then after that, we went to a hockey game. We did. So UCO, which is the University of Central Oklahoma, that is uh, my bachelor's degree is from there and Haley's master's. So that's where I went to school for, you know, seven years uh, because I was uh, the Harry Potter plan, as I like to call it. They have a hockey team. And they recruit from like all over the place. They've got a player from Russia. They have a player from Moldova. They've got a couple Canadians like all over the world. UCO is big for recruiting. And from what I understand, it's a lot of people that in their country, they're not good enough to go pro. So they can come to the U.S. and play at a collegiate level, getting great experience, and then potentially either go pro here or go back with the experience. And that can really benefit them. Plus, they get a you know paid college scholarship and get a degree for free. Uh, essentially. So that's awesome that we're able to do that for people. And it makes for a fun time because we went to the UCO OU game. Uh, both teams, OU is the uh, University of Oklahoma. Yeah, I forget yeah. that they swap it. Oklahoma University, University of Oklahoma. Uh, OU is the Sooners. They're a big football team, as you'll recognize all the time. Uh, it's funny because they're UCO's biggest rival, but UCO like almost always bests them. And both of their home stadium or home rink in this case is right here down the road, like three miles away. And we've just never been. It's like 10 bucks to get in. And we were behind one of the goals, which was OU's goal, the first and third period. UCO is the second. And with UCO being such an aggressive team, you're right here against the glass. We just stood the whole time. And you're getting people body checked right in front of you and the puck coming flying past you, like basically at your head, smacking into the glass. It was just a ridiculously fun time for our first hockey outing. And I was really surprised because, so OU is considered, you know, one of the best football teams in the division. Uh, they've been national championships multiple times when it comes to football. And UCO, I mean, we have a football team, but it's like, yeah, everybody get together and play football. It's not really something that's competitive. Yeah. And they're not known for it. And o, uh, UCO is really known as like a commuter college. It's not, it's not a community college, but it doesn't really have the quote unquote prestige that OSU or OU has. 
But I guess UCL has been national champions in hockey multiple times, and it showed. Yeah, it's. I think the past 10 years, they've made it like three or four times, and they've won twice. Yeah. And that's just the past like 10 years. They're very good. But yeah, UCOs, their sports are on like a lower tier. So it's like if OU and OSU are A-tier sports, that's like, you know, mainline college along with Alabama and whoever the hell, Florida State Gators or something. I don't know sports. I don't either. Uh, they're going to, UCO is going to be like the B tier and I don't know what they call it. It's kind of like how you have pro and semi-pro. They're a smaller college. They play smaller games, but in hockey, they're like number one. Yeah. And it was wild. And for example, we're, we're watching the, the game play and within 30 seconds, somebody gets body checked right in front of us. In the second period, we're watching a OU guy body check a UCO guy. He falls down. The UCO guy sits up and just punches the OU guy right in the in the nether regions. It was violent and crazy. Yeah, the OU guy was holding the UCO kid down and like keeping him on the ice, which you're not supposed to do. And so the UCO kid just pops him right in the balls and the OU guy's like, oh, you could tell he was like, I felt that even through the padding. It was pretty funny, but uh, they get they get rowdy and it was a blast to watch. Absolutely. And so I think we've actually found a sport. We have found a sport. Yay. <laughs> we are hockey people now. We have converted. We're going to buy the season tickets next year and read a bunch of Wikipedia articles on what the hell is actually going on in hockey. Yeah, the rules are crazy, but it's it's very fun. If you've never been to a hockey game, I highly recommend it. We're not sports people, but it is definitely a lot more fun than a lot of the other sports I've watched. Uh, I would argue the only other thing that I like more, but that's because of where I grew up, is I really enjoy wrestling. But As evidenced by you wearing a Young Buck shirt right well, now. Well, not pro wrestling. Actual, you know, collegiate or real wrestling. Olympic Don't. wrestling. We'll call it fake. I said pro wrestling. It's a whole different thing. <laughs> it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> but yeah, so we got to do that, which was very fun. Uh, we got to go up to Tulsa and see Zach and Sarah, as well as Mac and Cass, and meet their sweet little one. Oh, she was so cute. She looked like a mini Cass. She was a mini Cass for sure. No maternity test needed. That is Cass's baby. No, not at all. But we got to introduce them as friend groups because we've always loved Mac and Cass. We just don't get to see them. They live in Tulsa now. And it's hard to schedule, and they have an eight-month-old baby. So I know for them, it's like busy and a whole different thing. You got that schedule too, man. Yeah, so we were like, all right, Zach and Sarah, you guys are about to have a second kid. Let's introduce you guys because, A, we think you're all going to get along. You're all great people. And you're going to have a three-year-old, and you can have Cass's eight-month-old and your newborn baby and kind of have like, oh, we need to get together and just let the kids play, or we need, you know, they're already planning a zoo date, like that kind of stuff. So that was a really good time getting to visit them and see them. And basically, matchmakers are friends. Essentially. And then uh, this week, we had a fairly chill week. Mm -hmm. We had Jim Wynn and Cody over last night to play some games. And tonight, Lakin and Riley are coming up to go see some Christmas lights. But otherwise, it's just been a really restful week. Uh, recuperated from the holidays and from sickness and from uh, staying up past 11 o'clock to watch a hockey game. And so I think we're ready for a restful weekend to do some grocery shopping, see our little Lakey Bake. And hopefully play some more games. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's it's a game. So today we are talking about a game that I bought from Tyler at BGGCon. Oh gosh, which is Virsin Das Folk, which stands for We Are the People. This is a Game about Germany, I guess right here, 1949, Germany is split in, in two as the Iron Curtain descends. East and West Germany become bitter rivals. Which system is superior? Which will make its people happier? Socialism, social, oh my gosh, socialism, 
versus capitalism, collectivism versus individualism, which will triumph. And so it's a game that takes place over four different decades, uh, starting, I think, in the 40s, and then doing, I think it's like 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or it's 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, 50s to the 80s. 50s to the 80s. So that's the time period that this game is going to take place. Uh, here's the great part. I have the lid. Uh, if you're on the video, you'll be able to see this. This is the box size. It's little. So this is the size of Patchwork, which is crazy to think that this game is a two-player game the size of Patchwork that is estimated to take about two and a half hours. And you use it. I think between us learning it, setting it up, and playing it, it was about a seven-hour day. It was a long day because, and this, this can be the first thing we talk about, uh, even though I haven't got into even how the game works, these rules are tough. Like, once you've played the game, now I could sit down and teach you this game, no problem. But learning the game from the rules is actually, like, extremely complex. I don't know why, but going through these rules, uh, it just, things were like, it was hard to visualize something, right? And even with the board in front of you, it's not quite making sense until you really dig into it. So what happened was Haley wanted to read the rules. She's been trying to read rule books and teach me a game here and there because I always do all the reading, all the teaching, that kind of stuff. So she said, I want to learn this game to play. And I said, okay. And I let her read through the rule book and she read through the rule book. I think I was cooking breakfast. Yes. I was cooking breakfast. She was reading the rule book. After that, she said, I want you to read this <laughs> and then teach me now that I've read it. And I said, okay. So I then, after we ate breakfast and everything, I got the, I checked her board set up. I think I had to make one small tweak. Uh, and then I read through the rule book after that. And I was like, all right, I read through the rule book. I'm seeing all this stuff. Uh, this is the rule book for the technically first edition. The difference in the first and second edition is only in the setup uh, and like one other small detail. And that's it. Everything else is identical. There's no card changes. There's no errata on any of that. So super simple change. I just looked it up on the internet. Boom, fixed it, done. Um, and I think that's just for balancing sake. I think it makes the uh, West Germany not as strong at the start because I could see West Germany ending this game first first decade. Yes. And you got close to it. I got close to it, but unfortunately East Germany won, so the communists won. Well, East Germany has the tanks right off the bat. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so in Wiersin uh, das Volk, I'm just going to call it We Are the People now because uh, that's a little bit easier. In We Are the People, one of you takes control of West Germany, and one of you is East Germany. This is a game that focuses around politics, but it doesn't focus around politics in a war sense. You're not campaigning for votes. You're not putting soldiers on a battlefield. You are building infrastructure, building factories to boost the economy, as well as trying to uh, keep disruptions and protests to a minimum and increasing, uh, shoot, I can never think of it. It's LS. In the game, uh, they call it life LS. Satisfaction. Not life satisfaction, but close. Oh. Yeah, yeah. See, you're so close. And I, I kept doing that. I was like, what is this term? Uh, living standard. Living standard. You're trying to increase the living standard of the regions on your side of the board uh, in order to basically have a higher way of living. Like you're, you're trying to have the best economy. So it's not war-based, even though it is political, but you're trying to have the best economy and the happiest living, highest living standard, the lowest amount of disruptions and riots and stuff by the end of the game. So the way the game is going to work is similar to Twilight Struggle or uh, Labyrinth, 
or I'm trying to think of more games. It's it's another card driven game where all of your actions are going to be because of a card. Whether you burn that card just for its value of building infrastructure, whether you uh, use that card just to get rid of some cubes, or whether you use the card for its abilities or its event. And with these cards, so some of the cards will benefit the East, some of the cards will benefit the West, some of them are in the middle where they'll benefit both. However, unlike in Twilight Struggle, if I am the West and I play a card that benefits the East, Delton, playing as the East player, does not get to activate the card. Yeah, so that's one of the things in Twilight Struggle, if you've played it, if you have a card and you're like, all right, if I play this card, it's my, let's say I'm, let's say I'm uh, the USSR and I'm playing a card that's on the side of America and uh, is it America or is it just Axis or Allies, Allies? It's the, it's the Allies. It's France, uh, Britain and uh, United States. Is it represented as the US in the game though? Is that right? I feel like no. it was US versus USSR. No, it was, it had the um, broken up in the three sections. Okay. So you had the United States yeah. in the bottom, you had the uh, France in the middle and you had a great Britain no, no, at the top. No, 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 Twilight Struggle. Oh, Twilight Struggle, I'm sorry. Twilight Struggle is U.S. versus U.S.S.R. Oh, yes, U.S. versus okay. U.S.S.R., sorry. I'm sorry. I'm confused. You, uh, so in Twilight Struggle, I'm always confused. it's United States versus the U.S.S.R., and if I'm the U.S.S.R. player and I play a United States card for the point value to, to you know, change my influence in countries, Haley automatically gets the event on that card. So there's strategy in, US, in U.S.S.R., there's strategy in Twilight Struggle where you want a hand of your opponent's events because you want to control when those events happen. I don't understand how the hell that works. I'm terrible at the game. I'm just absolute garbage. And this gets around that because this says, if you use this card for this, okay, that's it. So you can take cards from your opponent and prevent them from having the strong abilities of those cards. I call them events. They're not technically events. It's just like, you get to build two free infrastructure and remove a disruption cube, and that's it. But it's essentially an event. Well, it, yes, they do have events on them. They have either callbacks to people, situations. That, that's true. Uh, infrastructure. They're just not called events in in terms of the actual cards. They're just like abilities on the card. But either way, um, I, I guess it is called events. Heh, there we go. I don't know what I'm talking about. We shouldn't review this game. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in We Are the People, you're going to be playing these cards and uh, modifying things on the board. Uh, one thing that I enjoyed about this is you have two cards in hand at basically all times. However, there are seven cards on the table that are open to see for everybody. And if you want to, instead of playing a card from your hand, you can play a card from the table instead. I like this because it allows you to see what's available to try to predict what your opponent's going to do or for you to steal something that you know is strong for them. The all four decades of the game, there is one special card on the display, it's an eighth card that only Eastern Germany can use. So only the socialist side is allowed to use that. So all of these cards are going to be doing several different things within the game, uh, which, as I said, are essentially going to be building up economy, living standard, and handling disruption tokens. Uh, basically, if any region, so the board is split up, uh, Eastern Germany has, what is that, one, two, three, four, five, like six different areas. Western Germany's got, I think it's uh, seven. I think it's seven different areas because one of them's very big. Bayern is super big. Um, oh, I guess you would have eight because you also have Berlin itself. But anyway, uh, each of those areas can only hold, it can hold however many disruption cubes, but once you get four disruption cubes, it then gets a mass protest marker. If any side has four mass protest markers by the end of a decade, they lose the game because now the people are essentially rioting. Like the people are turning on you because you're not taking care of them. 
the cards are going to be allowing you to remove disruption cubes. Sometimes the events allow you to place disruption cubes at your opponents or have your opponent choose where to place. They're going to be sometimes allowing you to move those cubes. There, are, There's a couple tracks on the board. One is priority, which is essentially who's going to go first, who's going to win ties. Uh, one of them is going to be socialists. It's at the end of every decade, how many socialists are going to come into play, which is good for the East and bad for the West. Because socialists, basically, they are uh, instigators of propaganda. Whenever the East plays a socialist, it can take away some disruption. Yeah, so it's really, really fascinating. And I thought this was a cool thematic thing. So the East, at the, at the end of every round, the East has this little socialist box. And if there are, um, if there are socialists in this box, you get to place them on the board at the end of a decade. Uh, if the slider track is toward the West Germany side, they're going to remove socialists from the board, which is bad. But essentially, what you want to happen as East Germany is you want, your, you want the areas on your side of the board to have protests, mass protests, because if there's a mass protest, the minute there's a mass protest marker, you basically get to put a socialist out there, remove a disruption, and if your disruptions are less than four, or at least in increments of four, uh, you get to remove the mass protest marker. So you want your people to start to freak out so you can send in these socialists and those socialists can calm the people down to prevent the protests. So you want a little unrest. You want the people to not be super happy so you can come in and calm them down, which also pushes you towards your in-game goal, which is like a fascinating way for that to work. Haley, on the other hand, is trying to uh, eradicate those socialists from your side, which will bring in the disruption because then the people go, oh, hey, you are actually a dickhead. And then it sets off, you know, more mass protests. Historically accurate. Historically accurate. So you'll be able to do that. And these cards are going to modify all kinds of stuff. One of the interesting things in this game, um, my brain, it's been a minute since we've played it now, like, I don't know, a week and a half. And so my brain's trying to catch up on exactly how things uh, happen. But one of the things that I uh, thought was interesting in it is you're building factories and infrastructure the whole time. So you're building factories on the cities, and the factories always start off at a value of one. You can uh, then build infrastructure, which is essentially a road, out from that factory. When two factories are connected by a road, both of them get one extra value. So they're a little triangle piece. Um, I'm just going to point on the rule book, but essentially imagine a triangle and the top of the triangle says one, and the next corner says two, and the next is three, and you flip it, and it's four, five, six. Anytime you have a factory with a road successfully connecting to another factory, the road flips to match your color, and then the factories turn to the next value up. So one factory could be a three, a four, a five, a six value if you've got multiple connections that are active on it. And you're wanting, in this game, uh, at the end of the round, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the end of round stuff in a minute, because that's where like all the big things happen. Because during the actual decade, you're manipulating cubes, trying to mess with your opponent, you're adding factories, you're building infrastructure, you're destroying your opponent's infrastructure, you're doing all these things in prep for the end of the decade when all the big, like, basically board checks happen. So at the end of a decade is when all the big shit happens. Um, and there's like seven different steps to it, and you follow it in order, all kinds of stuff. But essentially, there's a lot, right? If the Berlin Wall was built... It changes a little bit, but not very much. Otherwise, there is what they call flight from Republic. Um, on the East German side, depending on how good your opponent's doing and how good you are doing, you're going to get a certain value, and that value is going to correspond directly to how many... See, this is where I'm, I, I don't remember. Do, 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 While do, you're looking do, that up, do, can do, I spit do. some facts? Yes. 
So uh, I discovered a, a podcast recently called The Cold War Chronicles. And this last week, I listened to the episode about the history of the erection of the Berlin Wall. And it's really neat. One, because you have two English guys who cannot pronounce anything in German, which is hilarious. But uh, they talked about, you know, folks leaving uh, East Berlin to go to West Berlin, you know, uh, and just like how uh, crazy it was because like right before. So the Berlin Wall basically went up in like a day, like they woke up at like six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, uh, somehow snuck all of the uh, materials past the Allies, even though it it turns out uh, East Berlin or uh, like East Germany was uh, buying a lot of materials from Great Britain to build the wall. And they basically just erected it, uh, started building it one Sunday morning at like 6 a.m. And it was almost overnight the wall was up or it was uh, a human wall and then like the actual materials wall. The day before the wall went up, about 1,200 people defected to West Berlin. The day the wall went up, it was about 40. The next day, it was 20. So you go 1,200 people defecting. The wall went up 40 people and then in the 20s. Like that's how much uh, people were defecting. And that's how much it stopped. I didn't realize that. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? Like, that's a massive number of people that just didn't want to crawl a wall, basically. Or, or, I mean, you were, you know, I'm sure there were people with guns guarding it. So yeah. it's a very, it's not that you just don't want to crawl it. It's, it's, this is my life or it was, death. It was a shoot on sight kind oh, of situation. I'm, I'm sure. That's terrifying. Yeah. And they, they talked about too how, uh, and, and now this is a Western podcast. So, you know, it does have biases, but it talked about too how uh, East Berlin and the, and the Soviets. Uh, use a lot of propaganda to say, oh, no, the West are luring people over or they're kidnapping them rather than, oh, no, people are just running. Because yeah. a, a lot of folks uh, before the wall went up would live in East Germany because it's so cheap or East Berlin and then work in West Berlin because they got paid more money. And so that put a stop to that, too. And that makes a lot of sense why people would do that. And mm-hmm. I, I think I remember that from, was it in Goodbye Lenin? Uh, no, what's the... That we watched about the 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 mom that goes into coma. That's goodbye linen. It is goodbye linen. It then yeah. they they talked about that a little bit, I think, or at least yeah. mentioned it a little bit. Yeah. yeah, that's what my brain keeps going to that movie because oh, that's yeah. my because like the the dad had they all the family lived in East Berlin. Yes, uh, he worked in West Berlin, and the wall went up in the sixties, and he just stayed in West Berlin with his other family, yeah. basically. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Uh, okay, so at the end of a decade, sorry, we need Haley for all the historical facts. Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a jelly donut. There you go. Uh, so at the end of the decade, and this is where the weird stuff happens. So sorry about this. Basically, depending on how good or badly you're going to do, you're going to have to, as East, uh, as East Germany, you're going to have to dismantle factories and infrastructure. So if you're not doing super well, or your opponent's doing very well compared to you, you're going to have to dismantle some shit and that's going to hurt your economy. That's going to hurt the living standard, all of that. You go off prestige, something happens depending on where the prestige track is. Uh, I really like the, each of these, by the way, has a small historical little bubble, and I think that's fun in the rulebook. So one of them is Western currency. As East Germany, you want to make sure that you have enough Western currency on your Western currency track, because Eastern money is not worth anything, and Western currency is, and you must be able to afford the living standard of all your people with Western currency. And I like here in the historical fact, historically, East Germany continually suffered from a lack of Western currency. This was needed to import goods like bananas and coffee, but also industrial resources. Simultaneously, there was almost no investment into its economy, which was run on attrition. Such problems did not affect West Germany, which had the Deutschmark, a very tradable currency. And so I like having like that little little piece of history it throws in. But you're looking at how much Western currency you have, and if you don't have enough, uh, essentially, you're going to be removing more of your infrastructure, which is bad. 
you have to pay for police cards. Uh, this was the crazy fact. The East German system of control and suppression was enormous. At the end of 1989, there were 91,000 full-time Stasi agents, one per 180 inhabitants, and 180,000 informal agents, giving a total ratio of one police to every 60 people, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. And it says, based on these ratios, the Stasi were the largest secret service in, the wor- in world history, significantly outnumbering the KGB that were 1 to 595 people and the Gestapo, which was only 1 to 8,500. And you hear Gestapo thrown around way more than anything else. I've never heard of the Stasi, maybe from you or in a movie and not caught it, but uh, just the fact that, yeah, the what did it say? The Stasi and the informal agents. That's crazy. That's why, uh, especially in like 1988, 1989, mm-hmm. Gorbachev was really popular. Well, I guess popular. People called to him a lot because he... Uh, initiated the perestroika and glasnost, which was your ability to openly speak and the ability to press for the press to uh, publish anything, like publish oh, truth. Nice. And so, uh, you know, that basically made it legal to be able to start to protest. And, you know, some say that, you know, oh, that led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union because people could start to speak out, start to protest. I mean, the Soviet Union was already crumbling to begin with. This was just a way for, I, I, I think, from what I understand, a way for Gorbachev to know try to modernize a bit and give people the ability to speak out and i was like oh people really don't like it and yeah yeah i could see that that's cool uh so coming off that you have to pay for police power by dismantling infrastructure or factories uh so constantly all these negative things happen right if you're trying to have a lot of police if you're trying to like not have the economy to withstand your living standard like if there's not just just not enough and people are living higher than their means things are going to start to crumble sort of thing uh, you have to check your living standards. You have to compare your living standard of each region with the rest of your regions because if your regions are super imbalanced, that's not going to sit well with the people when one part of your country is getting more attention than the, than the next. Uh, then the other big thing, East and West can actually have comparisons uh, where you kind of attack a country and get to mess with them. It's basically, you know, if you're on the border and you're like, hey, why are they doing so good over there? Well, okay, that's bad for you, which means your people are going to be upset by it. That's what that represents. So it's not a battle attacking like war. It's attacking by economic comparison of the people living in that region. Um, And then you've got socialists. And then at that point, you check for collapse, which is always fun. But uh, I find that 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 last part, you're building toward that decade end. And at that decade end, you're checking all these things. You're comparing all of your areas. You're comparing you to your neighbor. You're making sure you have enough Western currency to support your economy. You're making sure your factories are, you know, built up in a certain way. And I just find that this game really had this nice flow to it that's taking these turns, affecting your opponent, building up your stuff. And then at the end of that decade, you're just like, all right, fingers crossed, let's calculate. And it was there was something kind of nice about it. Um, I don't know why, but that was one of my favorite things was when you get to that point, like, okay, I think I'm prepared for that. As long as Haley doesn't mess with it, I'm going to leave that and move over here and try to do this to counteract whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I find that to be just, it was just fun. It was nice. Like that was one thing with this game is I felt like it represented everything in an interesting way with the history and then the way the East versus the West wanted to build up their economy, build up their factories, their infrastructure, take care of their people was presented in separate ways based on scoring. So even though you're going to be comparing your living standard to your factories, uh, every region has an export factory. It's basically the highest valued one. And the West cared about uh its living standard not 
their living standard had to like match or exceed the lowest valued. But in the East, the living standard had to uh, be no higher than the highest valued. So it was like a different outlook on how the economy versus the people's opinions were in those two regions. It was very fascinating to sit and play because for as simple as the game looks on the table in terms of like pieces, for as small as a box it is, it's a deck of cards, some pieces, a rule book. It's like I said, patchwork size box. You bust it out and you start playing it and you realize there's all these little thematic things that it does correctly, I feel like. And it just makes for a really interesting, like, fun time. Absolutely. And I, I know at the end of the game, like, it was a brain burner. But it was really engaging the entire time. Because, like I said, we, we probably played for a solid, I mean, with rule checks and everything, probably two hours and 75, 75 minutes, two hours and 45 minutes or something like that. It was that. about 2.45 of actual play time. I bet we could get it just over two now that we've done it. Yeah. Because um, the rule checks weren't that bad. It was just getting used to, okay, how does this work? Why is it different for me and you? Kind of stuff. Uh, one thing I didn't do was talk about who publishes this game and designs this game and everything. Who done it? I'm just going to throw it in now instead of trying to retroactively put it in earlier. So we're just going to go for that. Because we've been caught on film. Because we've been caught on film. So Virsin Das Volk, uh, a rules booklet. It is published by Histogame. Uh, it is designed by Pierre Sylvester and Richard Savell. Cover illustration is by Friedemann Bacow. Other graphics by Richard Schako. Art advisor was Berta Volmeyer and Friedemann Bachau. Layout, texts, and translation is Richard Schako. Uh, and I think that that's it. But it was originally published in 2014. Uh, it is published. Uh, Histogame is a German company. And the rulebook looks really big, but one side of it is all in German. And I like that the side that's all in German is the color of West Germany. And the side in English is the East German color. That's kind of a funny, like, poke fun at you sort of thing. Uh, but it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, but yes. So that's Fierce Das Folk. Uh, is there anything else you can think of you want to say about it? Aside from just that I really liked the game. It was really fun and I liked it and you should play it and try to not let the socialists win like I did. Yes. I know that you can reach out and, uh, you, I know that you can buy this game. I'm not hundred percent sure where all it's available. Um, I actually don't even know. I think it's probably a 35, $40 game at most with the box size, maybe, I don't know. It probably could be more depending on if it's like out of print or something. And I don't think it's out of print. I believe you can purchase it right now. But if you like that political style, card driven, two player, sit down, think about it, play a long time, definitely pick this up. I think it's very, very good. Uh, but it is one that you're going to want to watch a rules video, read some forums, read the rule book, have somebody else read the rule book, sit down, work through it because Study. it's it's not it's not super, super long or anything. It's just uh, it's got some intricacies that until you see it in action, they don't make a lot of sense just off the page. But there you go. So if you're sending us folk, go get it. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. I forgot to say, we're also reviewing some Casey's fried pies this morning. So Casey's is a gas station. And uh, they're, they originally like weren't really in Oklahoma, except for maybe in like the boonies, essentially. Uh, but now they're everywhere. There's one right by our house. Best gas prices in town and a rewards program. But they have the little like fried pies in a box. And somehow they're all just the accidentally vegan. And they're so good. And you can buy two for two twenty two, And it's kind of a problem because every once in a while we're like, hey, let's get some pies. <laughs> so we go grab them. But they're delicious. Haley, let, very kindly, let me have half of her cherry pie. I'm a nice lady. You're my cherry pie. Thanks. Cherry pie. Okay. Go, 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 man, grow, man, cry. <laughs> okay, so the topic for today 
we wanted to bring up. So this is was kind of a question or a topic idea from Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer and Nick. Thank you guys for throwing us a question and also playing Lost Runes of Arnak with the expansion that I want. But she had kind of a question and I thought, well, this might be the game to bring this up. I was going to originally do this for a game that's supposed to be coming to us at some point. They haven't shipped it yet, uh, which we'll get to whenever we play it. To it's, be continued. It's part of a series that we've not ever touched in person, on the podcast, anything. Uh, but anyway, so we decided to do it here with Virsen Das Folk because the other game that's coming, even though it's based on some politics, it's a little more war, where Virsen Das Folk is very economy. And so I was like, well, that's a different outlook, economy and people's living standard, right? So uh, Jennifer had the idea of basically, does any board game actually and accurately represent politics? Hers was more specifically U.S. politics. And uh, we kind of had a discussion in the moment, a short one about it, just, just the, the case of like, no game will ever touch all the facets, I think. And we kind of talked about that, right? It's hard to include everything because A, political systems are also jacked up and corrupted in almost every case. B, no country wants to acknowledge they have an oligarchy. Yeah. And there's there's all these kind of things going on that the they either won't be represented or no one truly understands, or it's just so much you couldn't fit it all in, right? But there are games that take a piece of that or a couple pieces and really do mesh them together to give you the idea, the feel, and let you better understand those political processes, whether they be a military political process or an economic or something like that. And I think that Views and Das Folk, it, it does a good job of showing the different political structures of the East versus West because in the West, you know, it's really big on building up the infrastructure. But like Dalton said, uh, it was really focused on, you know, we're as strong as our... A strongest factory like that is what we're going off of we're in the east uh more of the idea was we're only as strong as our weakest factories it's more of a collectivist kind of perspective so i really appreciated that and also that you know the west again you know they're trying to build up the economy they're trying to you know do better than the the soviets or the socialists in the east and in east germany uh i really liked how you know, it was focused on building up infrastructure, but they really didn't have the ability to build up as much infrastructure for a multitude of reasons. And so part of their strategy, too, was, you know, suppressing uh, outrage or suppressing people or using propaganda, which, I mean, West used propaganda, too. Don't get me wrong. That was kind of left out on the West side. But I, I really liked how it showed the different tactics that the different sides used. And it's, it's really a simplified version, too. It wasn't like a, oh, that's exactly how the West was. That's exactly how the East was. But I do like the asymmetry in the game and how it kind of showed the different perspectives. Yeah, it was very interesting because, like you said, each side had a different attitude toward the living standard, where the East wanted one thing. The, the, West, the West wanted the living standard higher than the lowest factory. The East basically said, don't exceed the highest factory. But yeah, you, you really do get the feel in the game that the Eastern side is, is a collectivist side. It's all... We are, I mean, even though, you know, we are the people, which, which side was it that used that the most? Was it East or West? I'm not sure. It says in the book somewhere, but the, the Eastern side was, this is us. This is our group. This is how we act. And the Western side versus the East, then the Western side was very much, it felt a little more individual. It felt a little more, you know, it, uh, not so much based on everything has to be as equal. I don't know. It was very interesting, but I think that's something that that game does really well, as you were saying too. Uh, it just it, it represented things and given you have to abstract a lot of these ideas. Yeah. It's more the political climate rather than this is what actually happened. Yeah, political climate. But I also loved that it had even though it didn't feel like it had economy, it was about the economy. Yeah. It was about the economy and people's perception of the economy. That's essentially Virsen Das Folk. And uh, Delton mentioned a goodbye Lenin earlier. 
And I, I really liked Goodbye Lennon. You know, watching it as a 20-year-old, I think I talked about this in the past, uh, watching as a 20-year-old, you know, watching the Berlin Wall fall and, you know, the folks in East Berlin go to West Berlin and they see all the wonders of capitalism. Like, yeah, capitalism. See, they all want to go, uh, you know, eat Burger King and watch porn. And then I watch it again as a 30-year-old. I'm like, oh, that's what the West has to offer is Burger King, cheap burgers and porn. Joy. Uh, I Watching that, you know, especially now as a 30-year-old, you know, you watch the um, older folks in East Berlin, like the mom, the mom's friends, and how, you know, they were heartbroken whenever the wall fell or heartbroken whenever, you know, Germany was reunified. Not necessarily because of the reunification, but because, you know, it kind of lost that collectivist society. Like, the people who had worked for the state for so long no longer had jobs. They no longer had that, like, security that they had. You know, the idea of, like, we're only as strong as our, our weakest person. I'm sure, that, you know, there's poverty and there's, you know, exceptions to that in East Berlin. But, I mean, I think that's really replicated in the Wiers and Das Volk because, like Delton said, you're only as strong as your weakest factory. And then in the United States, you know, it was very much a, oh, we're going to really work to make some really strong factories. And it's very individualistic. And it's very much, oh, look how good this one factory is performing. That's great. That's the backbone of this economy while everything else is kind of crumbling in different states. And so I, I really like that representation. If you're interested in uh, having a little taste of what East versus West Berlin was like, I really recommend Goodbye Lenin. Uh, it's a very wonderful show. It really was a wonderful show. And I, I like that you said viewing it from two different decades of your age, right? Yeah. Having having a, lived on Earth a little bit longer, reevaluated what matters to you a little bit more and all this stuff. And you start to see the different sides and you see what people talk about, right? Mm -hmm. You see, you see why the old guy that didn't want the wall to come down in the West to infiltrate, you see what he saw, which was, we used to all get together. We used to be happy. We used to have my safety. Now I used to have a place in this society. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting to see because it's something that, that uh, as Americans we're taught was there was not a single good thing about it, right? Mm -hmm. Where nothing about it was ever good. It was all bad down to every single last iota of that idea and actual like the practicality of the way it worked it all was negative but we don't actually think about some people really had yeah some people really had a, a, a comfortable time some people really enjoyed it and after everything was over they were like well i miss my friends i miss what we had i miss how we used to live because now i can't do what i used to do because it was taken away and it's just uh, seeing the different uh aspects of it Yes, not listening to the propaganda and stuff like that's a fascinating just history thing mm -hmm. is actually getting to see both sides for both sides rather than getting to see both sides through, you know, tinted glass, essentially. Um, but that's that's something that I like about board games that present politics, right? To get yeah. back on track with our topic, because Versendal's Folk does that. It makes you think about these things in a given it's a little bit of a greater scheme. It's not necessarily thinking about it for the people a little bit. It's more of the economy. But board games in general, when they're historical, you start to think about these things whenever, uh, I should say, when they're historical and presented well. Because yeah. there are historical games that don't have anything to say. They don't have anything to present aside from just like, you guys are fighting a war, woo! And that's basically it. But there's a lot that, you know, try to do something else, as we've talked about a lot on the show. And to your point, too, uh, political games sometimes don't even have anything to do with the politics themselves, like you were talking about, you know, in Wir sind das Volk. It is the economy. Mm -hmm. Well, like in a 1960 making of the president, a lot of it is propaganda. You you run TV ads and you can start to, you know, change people's perspectives. You can start to sway the vote and things like that. Yeah. So we've got uh, there's a whole line of games. And I want to say it's Jason Matthews 
is the is the continuous designer in these games. Uh, I'm looking at the wall to try to spot, but I can't see They're his over name. Here. Yeah. Well, there's also that over there. But anyway, uh, he's one of the designers behind Campaign Manager 2008, which oh, you can see Margie. If you're on the if you're on the video version, you can kind of see Margie down here adjusting on her bed. Now she's scratching at it to get a little comfortable spot. Margaret, what are you doing? Margaret. There she is. Oh, hi, Marg. Mer. <laughs> Freaking sausage dog. Anyway, uh, Jason Matthews, I think, is the uh, the main designer, the continuing one between these or connecting one. But you have 2008, Campaign Manager 2008, which is Obama and McCain's political, uh, essentially. Political theater. It's, it's a political theater for for trying to win the election. But you're talking like that game is more focused on like, OK, which groups are you trying to appeal to? One of them is like old Catholic ladies. And one of them is, uh, I think one of them actually was like the, um, what was it called? Hispanic Catholic? Uh, what What's the term for the specific type of Catholic that comes out of like Mexico? It's not Mexican Catholic. There's a term in that game though, that if you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. Anyway, that one's focused more on like, what groups are you appealing to in what way? And then you take it up a notch and they have 1960 making of a president. We have the Z-Man version, which is what me and Haley learned on. I also have still in shrink the GMT version, which is cleaned up. It's a lot nicer. I want to play it. Sometime we should bust that out and learn the new version. Yeah. It's just they cleaned everything up, tightened a few things. But uh, yes, that one, you are politicking around the country and adding influence into different uh, states to try to win the election. That one, 1960 making the president, is the Kennedy and Nixon election. Excuse me. And I like those two because much like Twilight Struggle, the cards that you play, uh, a lot of them have different uh, actual events on them. So it has, for example, the uh, it talks about Kennedy versus Nixon, their debate. And, you know, the folks who listened to it on the radio thought the Nixon one and the folks who watched it on television thought the Kennedy one. And so I, I love that it has those little historical things, too. But again, it's about politics, mm -hmm. but it's about propaganda and persuading people rather than actually having votes or having a platforms that matter. That one is just showcasing our electoral college, like how, how the electoral votes work, because you're basically going around in that game and you're influencing these places, these states to try to have the highest, like, you know, highest amount of cubes on the state. That way you win the electoral votes. So you're not actually politicking for the people's vote to try to get population. You're trying to politic in the big cities like New York City, which is how I cinched the game against you. When I Nixon took, took New York, Nixon took New York and was able to steal it out from Kennedy. Um, where Kennedy already had, you know, some support, but you're winning these electoral votes. You're using the radio, like Haley said, you're using the television to influence. So it's it's representative of our like electoral system. And then you take it up a notch again to Twilight Struggle. And Twilight Struggle is in an interesting place. I know we talk about this game a lot, but it's, it's my favorites. It's in an interesting place to where, yes, technically you're representing like Cold War, but the Cold War wasn't a war. The Cold War was like a time a period of time in history where everyone was on the brink of war, but there was a lot of political and military like backhanded shit going on. It was basically a passive aggressive war. It was a passive aggressive war. It was just very cold. We're going to um, get to the moon first. <laughs> exactly. There is the moon track where you're on, you're on a moon race in, in uh, twilight struggle. It's like you're hinting like hint, hint at, Oh, well I have this nuclear weapon that I could possibly use. I have this nuclear which is backpack. Which is bad. <laughs> But it's interesting because that game focuses on how much influence you have in other countries. And sometimes, you know, uh, your opponent will come in and basically do like a coup and say, hey, you're, you're getting out of here. This is my country. I'm taking it over. My influence is here now. Um, that's one I'm less familiar with. 
like the history of, but there's a lot of stuff it represents on the cards, in the events, the different like decades or ages that it goes through. However, they're classified in that game are actually, you know, the historical events and it talks about them and has pictures and all this stuff. But it's another one that represents a piece of that political system, right? A piece of, uh, if you're a country with money and power, this is how you can influence other countries and do all this stuff to try to get them on your side to, to, you know, win the war in the, uh, they keep calling them theaters in that game. It's the, this theater and the, that theater. And it tries to like influence that stuff. But I think what I like the most about politics games, because I, I love political games. I love Years in Das Folk. I want to play that again. I love Twilight Struggle. It's one of my favorite games. Uh, Making of the President 1960 is one of the games that really made me a board gamer. Like, a mm-hmm. like oh, I, I am a board gamer. I love board games. But I think the reason why I like them so much was with all of the political games, there's multiple things you have to keep track of. Like, you have to keep track of, you know, uh, appealing to interest and the propaganda and the speech and the area control. You know, in Twilight Struggle, you have to, you know, keep track of the, the tug of war. You can't let it go all the way to nuclear war. You have to, uh, and that's something that's shared. I mean, somebody can totally sabotage that, and then you're having to bring it back. Uh, it's mutually assured destruction. You have to keep track of the area control. You have to keep track of the space race. And I love that with all of these political games, there's multiple things you have to pay attention to, and you can't, like, en- let anything falter. Because, like, if you let one thing falter, you're probably going to lose. Yeah, you have to keep your leg up. You have to keep on your side, keep it going as strong as possible and push, push, push and, and, and maintain that power in like every scenario. But it's interesting because you, you know, you can't just dump your whole hand in one spot because then you're going to lose the other two. And so it's a fascinating, a lot of these political games are fascinating, uh, uh, activities or fascinating, um, like projects of, I'm trying to, there's another term that I can't, my brain can't catch, but it's this fascinating idea of like, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. You've got to diversify. You want to win, but just by enough that you can focus elsewhere until you have to come back and try to win again. And that, I think, speaks a lot just for politics in itself. It's I don't have to beat you. It doesn't have to be a landslide victory. I just need to barely be ahead of you in this regard so I can then focus my attention on this other thing and then push that forward. Yeah, because if you're top in the space race, that's dope. That's awesome. But if the planet explodes, then you're just going to live on Mars. Yeah, if nuclear war happens, I mean, it's not good. Uh, there's other political games, a lot of them we don't have or haven't played, which sucks. Uh, one of the things that Jennifer brought up when she brought this topic slash question to us is uh, games like The King's Dilemma, which I almost bought. There's been a bunch of sales for, uh, like, Game Nerds has it on sale. There were some sales on it for Black Friday, and I didn't pick it up because it's one of those games where you have to have... You don't have to, I guess, but it's best with the same group of people to play through all of it, kind of campaign-y, scenario-y, and I want to try it, but it's one where, uh, essentially, from what Jennifer said, it's all politics. It's talking, it's convincing people to do this for you, and it's a lot of the, like, verbal politics, the actual convincing and backstabbing in the process kind of thing, so I don't know if that's if that's closer to, you know, what part of politics that would really poke into, just because politics are so advanced, but that's definitely a kind of game that does that, right? And even if you want to boil down that sort of politicking, that sort of lobbying to a most its most basic, games like Werewolf and Avalon... Or Coup. Or Coup is a game where you're like, all right, this is who I am. And they're like, but are you really who you say you are? And you're convincing people, you're talking people, you're making sides, you're then dividing the table. All of that is politics just from the verbal standpoint. And that's probably politics at its most basic is I think I'm right whether I am or not, I think I'm right, but I want you to think I think I'm right. 
want to convince you that I'm right. I'm going to convince you I'm right if I'm lying. Otherwise, if I'm actually right, I just want to make sure you're right and join me so we can catch who's not right. And it's like, that's kind of the basis of like all politics, right? That's where it I starts. I want to win. That's where it starts is I have an idea. My idea is right. His idea is stupid. And then you fight. And that's basically politics. Um, I've done it. I've solved it. All of history. I figured it out. That's our problem. Stop. Da, da, da. Stop arguing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other. It's hard because political games, there, there could be a lot more. We could talk about Pax Pamir and the way that it represents politics through a war stance, but through a invaders in a country it's it's the uh yes the invaders in the country and it is you know being able to switch sides at any time to align yourself with others and it's utilizing somebody else's military power for your benefit yes is what and which is also yes it's using somebody but it's also at the same time protecting your own in the process with pax premier because that's what that game's about and you've got something like an infamous traffic which is all about England bringing opium into China and just the amount of unrest that that brought and the issues, but also how England used it to then basically benefit from China having all this opium everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating game. Creating that a demand. It looks at the politics of colonialism, but also just the shitty things that England has done in the past, which is why there's now board games about them. Uh, there's just all kinds of ways you can look at politics I don't know that I can put any solid good thought into any of the rest because I haven't played them either enough or just I haven't touched a ton. I mean, you've got Democker, you've got Diplomacy, you've got all these games that are based on political systems kind of stuff. And uh, it's something I need to dive into, but hopefully you get an idea of the way politics can be represented in board games. Yes. and if, Based off our examples. And I think what's also good, too, is that with po- political board games, like you're going to have a lot of food for thought between turns. And so if you like to be engaged in games, if you like to be able or like the expectation to pay attention to multiple different goals, and like you have to, if you, I, I think you'd really like political games if you haven't ever given one a shot. Maybe don't try Twilight Struggle at first because I feel like that would make <laughs> me cry if I was 20 and trying to play that for the first time. Yeah. Uh, but pick some up, maybe like 1960, making the president, 1980, or I'm sorry, uh, 2008, making the president's a really good start. Uh, campaign game manager. Too. Campaign manager. Yep. That was my translator. Those are all very good. Yeah. Campaign Manager 2008, 1960 Making the President, and then Twilight Struggle. There is an app. The app is very good at teaching you how the game plays. It does not make the game easier. <laughs> it is not. And I say, and but, I don't say that as a gatekeeping thing. I just mean. It's a hard game. It's a hard game. And I think if that would have been my first political game I tried, I think I would. Nope. No more. I am not a board gamer. <laughs> Twilight Struggle is a lot. It does get harder than that, but there are a lot simpler than that. And honestly, for as tough as Virsindas Folk's rulebook was to get through and learn and all that, I think Virsindas Folk is much easier to play and not feel like your opponent is just going to dominate you. Yes, that is very true. So, very different. But yeah, so there's politics and games. Um, There's more we could always do, but I'm sure this topic will come up again in the future at some point. And maybe in the question. And maybe in the question. And now, join us for a Malthouse Games podcast special bite-sized question. So for the question today, Haley came up with a good one, which was what political like scenario, situation, event would you like to see replicated in a board game? So I think what I'd like to see replicated, maybe we can do this. We'll see. Is Jimmy Carter coming to visit small town Elk City, Oklahoma. And so whenever Jimmy Carter was running for president, he went to a lot of these small towns across the United States, you know, did the meet and greet, shook the hands, kissed the babies, all that fun stuff. And he made a promise that if he were to win the presidency, he would come back to visit. Well, Elk City was one of those towns that he went to visit and campaign in. 
and he won. And so he planned his trip back to Elk City. And there was a, a lottery system in Elk City where basically all residents, young, old, four years old to, you know, 104 years old, were entered in. And you had to listen to KCO radio in order to see if your name got drawn. Well, my dad and my great-grandfather got drawn, so they got to go meet Jimmy Carter. And uh, I think that a really fun uh, game would be a small town, a small podunk, because Elk City was very small back then. It's about 12,000 people now, which is pretty big. Whenever I was a kid, it was only about 8,000. Whenever it was in the 70s, it was even smaller. But I think a small country town getting ready for the president's visit would be great. Like, you know, planning for food, planning for media, um, you know, making sure that you, you know, only show your best and your brightest in the in the small town and all that fun stuff. I'm surprised your dad wanted to meet Jimmy Carter. He was like eight. Oh, okay. He was like, this was, My, I think, I 1976, so he would have been seven. Okay, so he was, well, your dad was only born in the 70s? He was born in 69. Jesus, okay. I don't know why that feels so weird. I always think he's, but it's just because my, my dad is ancient. Well, by the time my dad was my age, he had an 11 year old. That's true. Yeah. And that was me. Gross. But yeah, I think Gross. that would be really fun. I think that would be a cool one. Uh, I was trying to think of political things to replicate. I honestly have no good ideas because I just don't know political stuff. Um. So, yeah. Help. <laughs> <laughs> What about voting for if the university comes to town? When did that happen? Gary in the 1930s. I know your culture better than you do. Yeah, in the 1930s? Yeah. There was going to be a college? Swasu was supposed to go to Gary, and oh, they voted on it. Oh, and they said no because they're idiots. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. That'll work. Uh, we can even do the more recent version of that where uh, uh, my hometown with my mom working in the school system, uh, they put it as at a vote to the townspeople to build a brand new really nice through a grant so that it wouldn't cost the town hardly anything to build a brand new high school, middle school combo, gymnasium, big, nice facility, everything like that. But it would increase people's taxes by like a penny or two. And all the old people said no. Well, and so kind of piggybacking off of that, maybe a good topic might be, you know, being the a mayor of a small town, like being like a, I yeah. don't know, 40 year old mayor of a small town. You're kind of in the middle. You're having to, you know, keep the old town feel but also be progressive in some ways to draw new people and kind of balancing that like keeping keeping the town how it is versus you know progressing it in some ways that might be an interesting balance too i don't know how you could present it but yes that could be a good idea maybe like a uh, one-shot role play for a single person oh, jesus that would be fun <laughs> i want to see a video of that of the person who's role playing the old grouchy people who don't want their one penny <laughs> one penny tax on their house that's no. been paid off for 40 years but anyway, that would be that would be tough, but I think that works for my answer. So it works out. There you go. My eyes are glossing over now because I coughed because my throat's dry from talking too much. It has been you an talk hour. Too much. I don't ever shut up, I know. But yeah, so I think that's gonna do it for this episode. So thank you so much again for tuning in to the Mouth House Games podcast. I keep looking at the screen instead of camera, screen, camera, screen, camera. That's a problem. Uh, but yes, thank you for tuning in to episode 133 of the Malt House Games podcast. Hopefully you had a fun time like listening to us talk about political representation in games. Uh, hopefully you can try out Versindas Folk for yourself. Highly recommend it, as well as these other political games we've talked about. I recommend all the ones I've played, so there's that. Uh, if you have any questions for us to talk about on the show, a beer, a coffee you want us to try to uh, do for the show, a, a game you think we need to look at, anything like that, 
send an email to contact at malthousegames.com. You can also find us on social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K. At Squirrely Geek. You can find me at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K, but I pretty much never use my personal stuff anymore. I essentially only exist on the internet as Malthouse Games. Malthouse Man. It works out. It's easier for me. Uh, so there we go. Uh, I think that's everything. I think so. I think so. So, again, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. See you folks later. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.